And then we expect for, for 160 days of horrible torrential rain and wind and earthquakes and whatever else is happening, volcanoes and stuff. That is there, but it's quite insane. Now, I, I bet that God has prepared for people to have like that. And Noah was pretty intelligent, so I'm guessing that he had thought about the consequences of animals and, and you know, humans and those things that happen after humans. I, I don't know, maybe he knows, but I'm not sure he knows that there's I'm sure they thought of something, but the Bible just doesn't describe that stuff. It doesn't tell us all the details, but it simply says that for 150 days, Noah and his family were on this ark with rain coming down, again, God stopped it. And closed up the stuff that was coming out from the ground and the trees. Little wind blow across the water. And we know uh, from Genesis 9 2 that the animals before the flood didn't have a fear of rain. So, so maybe while they're on this ark, there's a haven. So maybe there's not. There wouldn't have been a need for these animals to not necessarily be in each other when they were. Of man, so it wasn't like they needed each other as much because you really don't know exactly how this worked. But for this 150 days, and then another several months after that, um, back when the rain had stopped, this cabin, this family, could take care of all these guests that God had brought into this place in the world. Uh, and, and then it's, uh, it's several months go by and, and things uh, stop, the, the ark is, is stopped on top of the mountain here about. And uh, Noah's wondering, maybe this is from the flood. And he sends a, uh, a raven out. And the raven comes back pretty quick and says, Maybe it's not that. And then the dove comes back pretty quick and says, Maybe it's not that. And I don't know, maybe he's, maybe he's a stranger who's a little bit confused. Maybe there's a, Come on, Dad, we'd like to leave. What's going on? And so he sends out another dove. And the dove comes back with an olive branch. And then a week later, he sends out another dove. And the dove never comes back. And so he thinks maybe things are settling down. And sure enough, the waters were receding. They were going into their lakes and seas and rivers and whatever else, and, and they're uh, drying up from the rain. And, and again, we don't really know what this looks like. We can't imagine it. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's it's probably some wasteland, but surely there's something going on deeply. You know, maybe at the higher elevations, some of the the plants were staying or something. We just don't know what it looked like here. And so the the, uh, the ark is here for a little while longer. And uh, 11 months after this whole ordeal began, God tells Noah, when you read about it in Genesis 3, 6, 16, he says this. He says, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that plagues the feet of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him, and every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, and everything that moves on the earth went out by family from the ark. That was his wife. They've been in, in this confined space. I, I know it's big. It feels like a lot of stuff in there. A confined space for 11 months. And now you get back on the ground and, and the opportunities are open in front of you. I can imagine that there was this excitement to be out of the ark 
but also a lot of work to do. I think it has. You've been living in art, but that's not what you want to continue with. You've landed on the top of the mountain, and, and that's not a place you want to spend your whole life. You want valleys and plains, you want places for gardening and for building a house and for taking care of your animals, etc. You've got plans that are ahead in front of you. And Noah, like a good spiritual leader and father of family, he, he causes that process, that uh, move into planning and action. And he says, let's take a moment and let's And so Noah builds an altar. In Genesis 8 20, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Uh, it's, it's important to stop at the part of the story that notice that Noah is doing something that God told him to do. Back in Adam's day, when Adam had sinned, God gave him a sacrifice. And the sacrifice, it wasn't a, a ritual thing to gain God's favor. The sacrifice was a faith thing. It was a, a looking forward to the Messiah. God promised that he would wage war with the serpent, which is Satan, which is the devil, and that he would win that war. And it was one of Adam's children, of Eve's children, that would do that battle. Not Adam and Eve, but one of his children. And so Noah, remembering the faith exercise, he, he makes this sacrifice and he praises God for the work that saved him from the flood. But he also is looking forward to what God is going to do in saving him from that serpent and death, right? So he's, it's a faith thing that he's doing, making this sacrifice. Uh, of this altar experience. I remember we talked uh, a little while back in this series about two paths. Uh, Adam's children kind of represent both of those paths. You have Abel, and Abel brings uh, the, the offering that God has asked for, that faith exercise kind of offering. Okay. But then Cain, he does something different. He, he takes a different path, and he chooses to bring some of his stuff. It's like he's saying, um, hey God, see what I've done? I've I, I got this great stuff, I worked really hard, and, and so here, I'll give you some. Let's take some more. Something for you. That's Cain. Cain's got his own path. He calls it the, the path of self-determination. And then the, the evil path, that was the path of faithfulness. Faith, uh, faith walked with God. God had a path, he said, please offer the sacrifice and we'll take care of it. And, and mankind just kind of kept going these two different paths. Noah was on that path of God, the path of righteousness, the path of faith and trusting in him. And so when God met Noah and said, there's a judgment coming, here's the plans for an ark, Noah was like, yeah, I trust you, God. I believe there's a judgment coming, and sure, I'll build that ark for you. He, he responded in obedience because of his simple faith in God. And, uh, and that's Noah, and right here after the flood, he stays on that path. And he is faithful in that offering an offering to God on those altars. Do you wonder what God was thinking when Noah made that sacrifice? Or maybe you don't think about that one. But let's just for a moment wonder what is God thinking? Actually, you don't have to wonder. Because the very next verse, it says what God is thinking. If you look at Genesis 8, verses 21, and just the different Greek letters, you might not have the language. It says, and when the Lord smelled the evening aroma, let's just stop for a moment. Before the flood, it says God saw. Now after the flood, God smelled. 
physical attributes of God very often. I think that in the history of the Bible, the writing about the physical attributes of God that you can see here, that you can smell them, is that God is engaged. They want us to know, they often want us to know, that God isn't some elite God way out there that gets things off and says, okay, you know, good luck, I got everything for you. He's engaged, he's thinking about us, he's caring for us, he's watching us, he's with us, both the reminiscence, the smell, the, the cooking heat. And it says that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. So, not, not that I just believe that Importance of wide variety of diet, but um, from what I understand, I'm not personally vegetarian, but from what I understand, um, meat can be very pleasing and it's especially uh, considered a lot of that. But I understand that people do, and it's okay if you eat it with God's help because it gives us opportunity to worship Him. For a different reason, I'll explain why. Not because it isn't good to eat, but because it teases us that Noah is following. Remember that verse in Hebrews 11? We talked about Enoch and the whole story about how he was a prophet and whatnot, and, and, uh, and that the reason he goes to heaven isn't because he's so much more perfect than human beings, but because of the sign of God's promise that he's going to get a reward for that. So then in, in Hebrews 11, when it talks about that, it says that, that Enoch pleased God. It was found that Enoch pleased God. And then it says something about pleasing. It says that Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You see what's going on here? There's a pleasing aroma because God sees one of them. Do our lives smell good? Do we have good smelling lives? Does God enjoy as He participates in our lives? Does He enjoy smelling our faces? It's an interesting question. Just think about it. Now let's keep reading. So the, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for it has been said to a man's heart is he like unto me. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature that I have done. While the earth remains, the seed time of harvest, cold heat, summer and winter, we're getting a bit of winter right now. Um, soon, right there. I, I can feel the cold. Something has suggested winter. It's been cold right now. Summer and winter. Um, day and night shall not cease till thou comest. And then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, this promise is the basis of the basis, the, the, the most simple form of God's covenant with mankind. I will preserve the earth, is the promise that God is giving to us. And, and Noah and his children are given this invitation to join God in this work. He says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this God gives them the responsibility um, afterwards. And he says that we can have some dominion, kind of like Adam did. He gives them some boundaries. He says, you can eat food, uh, you can eat the, the animals for food, but don't eat the blood. He gives them some boundaries around that. He has responsibility, uh, opportunity, boundaries. All of these things are kind of included in what we call this rainbow covenant. I'm going to preserve the earth, he says, and I'm going to ask you to 
saying I was angry before, so I destroy everything. But I'm pleased now to experience this torture. I saw what's going on inside. It was calm. So you can, if you look, it says um, in uh, um, it says that uh, the thoughts of man are really coming from heaven. It says something fantastic and relevant God is not making a promise with with Noah because Noah offered sacrifice. That doesn't equate to the fact. He's making a promise because it's in his very nature to do this. He is a loving, faithful, persevering kind of God. And so he makes a promise out of his own character. That was the response for Noah. And, and this covenant thing that you know, the testament, the old testament. Same word as covenant, the same idea as covenant. So you could theoretically take a Bible and you say that's the old covenant and that's the new covenant, right? The problem is when we look at those those two phrases, old and new covenant, they're at the center of some pretty confused theology. There's some stuff that that uh, leads us to conclusions that that aren't real, that aren't intended in the Bible. Like for instance, the God of the old covenant, the God of the old testament, is the God of wrath and anger and judgment and retribution and the, the, the way to salvation in the old covenant is for me to be obedient and just toe the line or else I'm going to be lost. But the new covenant, the new testament God is different. This is Jesus and love and new commandment I give to Jesus, right? And and grace. We're saved not because of our works or toe the line or whatever, but we're saved by Christ and his work. And we can kind of get this confused idea of two different gods, two different salvations. But the Bible says that's not really the case, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why would he be different in the Old Testament than in the New? And in fact, Jesus himself says, I come to show you the Father. You're confused. Let me show you what the Father's like. And so Jesus experienced love and grace and mercy, all this stuff, is really a Further expression of what the Old Testament should have been revealing to us. So I, I just like to uh, just like to look at this covenant for a moment here in Numbers one. And then we're going to uh, not get into a bunch of theology about covenants and stuff, but I want to just look at the basic idea. All right. So Genesis 8, 21, 23, God makes a promise. I will destroy the earth by a flood event. That's that's his big promise. And then Genesis 9, 1 and 3. God gives mankind responsibility and invites them to do his work. And then in 9, verses 3 and 7, he expands and clarifies the boundaries of his dominion. And then in chapter 9, verses 8 to 17, God makes a, an important promise that helps to, I think, set apart the God of the Bible from all the man-made religions. And it goes like, like this. He says, it's an everlasting covenant with Noah and all his descendants. He even expands it and says it's a covenant with the animals and the earth itself. And, and then he also says that it's that there's a sign that this covenant will be kept, that these promises are, are sure. And that sign would be this rainbow that shines across the, the sky, the edge of the cloud, and then there's the rain. Right? And I, I want to look at the sign for just a minute. It, it's uh, Genesis chapter 9, verses 12 to 15. And, and God says, This is the sign of the covenant that I make. All creatures may live here. 
I have set my bow in the cloud, and it was the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And then jump forward to verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Just that one line in the Bible. I will see it, I will remember it. That's an interesting statement, right? Does he have a bad record? Is, is God having trouble remembering the promise that he made? I, I don't think so. The, the bow in the clouds really should be for us, right? For us to remember that God has made a promise and that God is going to keep it. But when he says it's going to be a promise or a, a sign for me, God says myself that I can remember. Well, I think that this really sets us apart as far as looking at God and his promises and looking at humans and the, the religions that we create. When we think of gods, I don't care if it's pagan gods from Rome or Greek or Hindu gods or Buddhist ideas or whatever, um, they can even be Christian-based, right? When we make religion, we're the ones who set the promises. We make the promises. All that the Lord has said we will do is what he says. That is my son, right? We make the promises in human religion. And then we make the signs. Like, let's say that you're, uh, you're really wanting your garden to go well this year. You need some healthy rain. I mean, right now we need some snow, right? Um, so we could be praying to the gods of, I don't know, whoever makes the, the, the things grow, right? We could be praying to them for snow. And we could do like our, our rain dance. Or, you know, whatever, we could, we could uh, do some kind of ritual fertility rite. But this is what pagan religions have done all throughout the ages, right? And, and the intention is that our sign, the thing we do, will get their attention. That they're a weak God, that maybe um, are doing other things, distracted. Remember Elijah mocking the people, the, the prophets of Baal? He's like, hey, maybe, maybe your God's in, in the toilet. And, and he's, he's doing some business, and we need to get his attention so that he can come and, and bring fire down on their altar, right? Or maybe he's making a vacation, he says, because these are the ideas. When we are the ones that make the signs, we're trying to get God's attention. Hey, God, pay attention to me. I have a need. Please help me. Please don't destroy the earth with the flood. That's when we create promises, and we make the signs. That's the human religion. But this is not what the promise in uh, Genesis is about. It has nothing to do with us. In, in God's situation, when it's Bible religion, God is the one who makes the promise. The promise is based on him and his character and his power and, and all of uh, his members. And he, he can remember that promise. And it's God who performs the sign. We're going to look at another sign that helps us remember another promise that is linked to who he is today. Uh, now, notice Genesis 9.16. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant. He doesn't say, I'll make a new covenant or an old covenant. He says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with mankind, with the earth. And I want to look at this idea in a, like a, a graph, if you will, like a, a visualization graph. Now, I know it's tiny print. You're not intended to see all the details. Don't worry. Um, but, but here's the point. You see on the far left there's an arrow, and on the far right there's an arrow, and this blue line on the top kind of spans over the whole thing. 
This is a covenant that is from everlasting to everlasting. So God's everlasting covenant is a covenant based in his character and who he is. It's a covenant that doesn't change, but promises because of who he is. Now, kids, you have parents that hopefully are here. You shouldn't even have to wonder, is there going to be a place for me to sleep? Is there going to be a place for me? That sometimes might sort of sound like that, but, but uh, in a typical environment, your parents are going to provide for your needs. You, you don't even worry about it, right? And that's kind of where God is for us. He's not the kind of guy, the kind of God, who provides, who loves, who, who saves. This is the God of the Bible, the covenant of the Bible. But then there are, there are covenants, promises that God communicates to different people at different times. There's lots of them. There's the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve before their fall. And he uh, gives them dominion over the earth in that covenant. Uh, but then there's the covenant he makes with Adam and Eve after the fall. And in that case, he promises redemption for you. You mess up, and I'm going to save you again. I'm going to win the battle over your sin. And then there's the covenant that God makes with Noah, this rainbow covenant that we're talking about today. And then there's the covenant with Abraham that we're going to talk about next week. And then there's the covenant with Israel and with David. And, and there's all these different promises. Lots of different covenants, lots of promises, but all of them come from this covenant nature and the character of God. And they're communicated in history, in the context of human events. So, for example, Adam and Eve have just sinned. And, uh, and what does God tell them? There's going to be a savior. One of your kids is going to win the battle against this serpent. And then uh, with Noah, you've got all this wickedness, and then God destroys with a flood. And afterwards, maybe there's some anxiety going on. God makes a promise to bring peace and, and to, to stop any anxiety. And he says, I'm going to preserve the earth. And then for Abraham, Abraham's a guy who, whose wife can't have kids. And what does God promise him? Kids. Not just kids, a great nation that comes from him. And that, but interestingly, each one of these covenants is tied to God's great promise. The promise that he would have a victory over evil. And so Noah, he's going to preserve the, the, the earth because he's going to save us. Um, Abraham, he's going to give him kids because one of his kids is going to be the savior. Uh, from the very beginning, every one of these covenants is about Jesus. Now, don't let anybody tell you that the old covenant is a covenant of uh, works and obedience. The old covenant is a covenant of promise and of grace. The old covenant is based on the great and precious promises of God. Not of me, but of God. His promises. And in each time that God communicates something, God gives a promise that's connected to the everlasting promise. Uh, my, my slide here on the left, it says the Old Covenant has New Covenant DNA. And the New Covenant has New Covenant DNA. Uh, they're, they're all from the same origin, all from the same God. When Israel was given a covenant on Mount Sinai, Israel, they, they heard the promises of God. And if you read them, they're in chapter 19 of, of Exodus. And he says, I'm going to make you a nation of priests. A nation that, that testifies of 
of my love, of my covenant promises with the world. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And what do, what do they say? All that the Lord has said, we will do and deal with you. I'll get to that in just a second. When, when we look at the Old Covenant and New Covenant idea, they're really not looking at the promises of God. They're looking at our response to God's promises. Think of it like this. One response, the intended response, is a faith response. This is Noah responding to the promise of God. He offers sacrifices, following God's path, following God's directives, in faith, trusting that God is going to be the Savior of mankind. And, and every godly person in the Bible, you can, you can see this, Abel, he trusted in God. He had a faithful response to God's covenant. And so did Seth, and so did Enoch, and so did Noah, and so did Abraham. In fact, in Hebrews 11, in the faith chapter, it's really talking about the new covenant experience of all these Old Testament people. All, all these people that responded in faith to the promises of God. In, in this case, obedience isn't about pleasing God. Having faith is about pleasing God. And obedience is a response to the simple faith and trust that we have. Our response is intended to be faith. But not everybody is faithful. Some people respond like Cain. And, and he responds in this path of self-determination. This is the Old Covenant experience. See, the New Covenant is the covenant of faith. The Old Covenant is the covenant of, I got this, God. Like the Israelites, standing there at the base of Mount Sinai, all the Lord has said we will do it be obedient. And what happens just uh, not even a, right, what, a month later? A month and ten days later? They're in the middle of this pagan feast Worshiping an idol is licentious type stuff happening. It, it's a really bad thing. All the Lord has said we will do, and no, actually, never mind. We're just going to do our own thing. That's their response. That's the old covenant experience. And you know what God does in response to this? He sends Moses back up onto the mountain, and he gives them a whole series of signs. Signs of the covenant. What are these signs? They're the sacrificial system. They're the, the, the sanctuary and all of the services, the feasts, and every single one of these things points to Jesus. And then what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to do the sanctuary thing, not so that God will be pleased with them, you know, with their actions like Cain bringing, bringing his works to God, but because of their faith in what God would do for them. And they are gospel symbols intended to draw the, the heart to the Messiah that would come. And of course, they pervert it, and it becomes another mechanism for man to do it themselves. Um, you can trace this path of self-determination, this old covenant experience from Cain, all the way down to Jesus' time. And, and it might be that people following this old covenant experience are like Cain, with a heart filled with anger, with deception, with murder. Or it could be like the Pharisees, who are, they're, they're the best of the best. They're following God's law perfectly, right? Except they have anger and deception and murder in their hearts. You see, the path of self-determination can never change our hearts. It's an external 
sign, an external religion that we do, but it's not transformative. The new covenant experience is intended to be transformative, and it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that that can happen. The, the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah, um, just forgot the verse, but in Jeremiah and Ezekiel talks about this new covenant experience, and it promises that God will give us a new heart, that God will change us from the inside out, that he'll write his law in our hearts. The, the new covenant idea is about a faith response to God's promises. Now let's go back to this rainbow covenant idea. And uh, if you read Genesis, the rest of Genesis 9, you'll find that mankind did their best to follow God's plan. God's plan was to fill the earth. Remember that? Fill the earth was one of the responsibilities, a faith response to God's promise to preserve the earth. And, and you can even see them doing it. Chapter 10 focuses on uh, all the descendants of Noah. And you read in chapter 9 that that Noah and his, his kids were starting to kind of make things happen. They planted vineyards, they built houses, they took care of crops. There's even this really awkward story about some vineyards in the last part of chapter 9. And, and in chapter 10, with all these children that follow, you even have some evidence that they're filling the earth. Um, it's Genesis 10, verse 25. It, it describes, it says, uh, to Eber, two sons were born. And Genesis 10 is all about these different children of Adam. I mean, of, of Noah. So Eber has two sons. One of them's name is Peleg, and uh, his name means that in his day the earth is divided. It's like there's there's stuff happening. Now some would suggest that this is like the division of the continents or something. I don't know, maybe, probably not. Um, another suggestion in some translations it says, because that in his day the languages were confused and the people were divided. And that's probably a more accurate interpretation of what this means. But there's, there's some spreading out that's happening in Peleg's day. The Bible is suggesting Adam's kids are, to some extent, following the path that God had laid out for them. But then there's this story in Genesis 11, and, and, and everything kind of goes, well, it goes to Cain, if you don't mind me saying it. <laughs> because Cain followed the path of self-determination. We're going to do it our way. Thanks, God. Like what you just said, but never mind. I have my own, my own plan. And if you read Genesis chapter 11, it says in verse 2 to 4, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Hey guys, this place looks good. Let's settle here. It's not bad. you got to put your tent somewhere, right? No big deal. Except that immediately afterwards, they're like, let's build a city here, and let's get lots of other people to join, and let's build a tower. And you start to see that what's going on in their hearts is rebellion against God's plan. And instead of trusting that God would never destroy the earth with the flood, the people are like, we're going to build our own ark. We're going to make our own salvation. And ever since, we, we know of Babylon as the place where humans design their own alternatives to God's salvation. And you can find it all the way to Revelation, this idea. But interestingly, when you look at this story, what you'd expect from this God who just killed a bunch of people because they were not following his path, what you'd expect is that there's judgment coming. And there is. The Bible says that God saw. 
Again, God's involved, he's engaged, he's connected, he sees what's going on, and he's like, no, this isn't working out. They're following their own path again. But instead of judgment, God brings a, a nudge in the right direction, and he confuses their language. Verse uh, 5, chapter 11, verse 5, he says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had made. And, and he, he saw that the only way to, to solve this problem and to get people to spread out like he intended is to confuse the languages, to make them babble. And because they couldn't communicate well, they spread out and they filled the earth. So, so what is this very theological, theoretical conversation about the covenant? And a couple really old stories about um, people right after the flood. What does it have to do with you and me? Paul narrows down this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And he's, he watches the same kind of rainbow promise um, covenant ideas that God is making. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Do you see some of the same language? All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. They, they are for me in Jesus. And, and then he, he says the sign, so God makes the promise here, the sign or the, the symbol of God's covenant relationship with us, of God doing this in our lives, is that he puts his Holy Spirit in us. That's kind of an obscure thing. It's not as obvious as the rainbow, is it? It's every bit as obvious. Not because all of you are speaking in tongues or going out and working miracles. Those are gifts that are appropriate at certain times in certain places. But the, the Bible says the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is the transformation of your heart. Instead of the Pharisees having the same attitude as Cain, that anger and the rebellion and the um, murderous intent, the deception and all that stuff that's going on in the heart, God says, I'll give you my Holy Spirit and the fruit is going to be and joy and patience and kindness and temperance and love, right? All of these, all of these fruits of the Holy Spirit in our hearts are the transformation of our hearts. Has your heart been transformed by Jesus? Has the Holy Spirit been working in you? It, it doesn't take a lot. All God asks is a faith response. Now, some people would. Uh, and, and as a preacher, I'm kind of tempted to call you to faith. Be faithful. Have faith. Grow your faith. I'd like to, like, I don't know, ask you to make a decision about this right now. But, but it doesn't really work that way. Faith isn't something that you can muster up and work really hard to have. That's not how faith works. Faith is uh, it's more like a surrender. It's a, well, it's rest. In fact, doesn't the Bible say that the Sabbath, a day of rest, spiritually resting, is the sign that I, that, that the Lord, is the God who saves us? Faith is about rest, not about mustering it up. 
we, we recognize that God is the one who created us. And several weeks ago, when we started this sermon, I invited you to take a step of faith and say that God created the earth. And not only that, that God gave us a revelation of all of his interactions, or at least a good chunk of his interactions with mankind, so that we can understand them. And that the Bible is his revealed word. And that the Bible is historically accurate and helpful for us spiritually. I asked you to take that step of faith. And so I guess what, what we need to do if we've taken that step of faith to believe that the Bible is real is to take God's promises and believe that they're real for me too. We say, you said it, God, so I believe it. Rest. Just to say, okay, God, I'll let you have this. Simply believe, trust, have faith. And that's what I'd like to ask you to do. I'd like to ask you to rest. Rest in God. Let him be the one that's in charge of your salvation. He's the one that said, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's the one that said, I'll create in you a new heart. I'll put a right spirit within you. These are the promises of God to you. And all you have to do is say, go for it, God. I'm all you. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's uh, stand for our